James chapter 4. We're going to pick it up right at the beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Last week, um, when we looked at the second, basically the second half of James 3, um, the thrust of what we saw there was how real biblically defined wisdom is displayed. And we saw wise people who are wise and heavenly wisdom display that wisdom by gentleness and meekness rather than arrogance and anger. We saw that wise people portray their wisdom um, by good conduct rather than selfish ambition. And we saw that people who have heavenly wisdom portray it by their works, not just their words, because words can be false. James wanted us to know that there's a difference between worldly and heavenly wisdom, so he contrasted the two uh, to kind of elevate the difference and help us to see it. Earthly wisdom is that which is selfishly ambitious, deceptive, and results in vile practices. So you can look at the outcome and decide what kind of wisdom it was, right? Heavenly wisdom, on the other hand, is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruit, unwavering, impartial, and without hypocrisy. Once again, I would prefer there not be a chapter division here between three and four. And you could say, well, if we had, you know, if you had it your way, there'd only be one chapter in James so far. Um, I would, I didn't mention where I would have made them. I'm just saying I don't want one right here because I think that the subject of quarrels and fights is a pretty clear continuation of his warning against demonic wisdom, as quarrels and fights are most certainly the outcome of possessing and exercising demonic wisdom. So here's the question at hand. You could argue this is always the question at hand when somebody is preaching or teaching the Word of God, but especially this morning, I want this to be the question at hand. Ready? Is the Bible accurate and true here? That's the question, and we have to answer it this morning. What is the cause of quarrels and fights among us? And this is the royal us. This is all of us. This isn't just you and your in-laws. This is broader than that. Three causes are given. One, our passions are at war within us. Two, we want things we don't or we can't have. Three, when we ask for things, we do so with wrong motives. Let's illustrate each of these suggested causes in attempt by the end of this message to decide if what the Bible says is true. First, Quarrels and conflicts are caused by our passions at war within us. The first one's the toughest, I think, because you have to break it down a little bit more to really understand it. So bear with me, please. 
okay? I, I, I'm not, I don't just, this isn't just stream of consciousness. I do think these things through and have an end goal. So if you stick with me, I think you'll be able to follow the pattern of thought. Um, if you can't, you need to start letting me know afterwards so I can change up the way I do this. Um, the NASB is helpful here because the NASB, New American Standard Bible, translates this, is not the source of quarrels among you that your pleasures wage war in your members. Whereas passions, the ESV, rings a little bit differently. Passions can be angry emotions, whereas pleasures usually aren't. Usually, all right? Either translation, passions or pleasures, of course, those words come from an original Greek word, which is hedone, which is spelled hedon, H-E-D-O-N-E, which ought to ring a bell in your head because we have a familiar English word called hedonism, which means the pursuit of pleasure. So you begin to understand in the original Greek what it is that James is getting at. Within my person, uh, within my mind and my body, are desires for pleasures, desires for enjoyment. And these desires are in conflict or at war within me. So even before we get outside of a single person, there's already conflict and warfare. Not too long ago, we were making our way through Galatians 5. And I pointed out to us that while we have been saved from reigning sin, we have not been saved from or delivered from all remaining sin, right? We went ahead and checked in with Paul in Romans 7.15 during that sermon where he says, I don't understand my own actions. The things that I hate, I'm doing, and the things that I want to do, I don't do. And if you need a refresher, that sermon is on our sermon audio page from June 18th, 2022. The takeaway for us from Galatians 5 was this. We are not dual-natured. We have one nature, human nature. But as Christians, we most certainly are dual-desired. We have two kind of sets of desires. Desire one, please God, be obedient to God, do what God says, because we know that he knows what's best for human flourishing, if for no other reason than that. God made us. He knows how we're supposed to work. So what he says to do, we ought to be doing. Desire number two, gratify the flesh, do whatever my body wants at any given point in time. And we see this play out in our children, right? They have a similar situation. They don't know it, but they have two desires as well. They have their own and then they have ours. They don't really possess ours, but we force it upon them because we're bigger than they are. We can make them do what we want. God doesn't seem to do that. Instead, what we have as Christians is these two desires are at war with one another. You remember that? 17, Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And I told you at that point that what licentiousness does is it removes the warfare. Licentiousness says it doesn't matter how I conduct myself because I'm not under the law. What's happening when we take license is we want to, we want to grasp the rights of children of God without having the nature of children of God. 
all children of God by nature have desires implanted within, within them that are consistent with what God has clearly commanded. Christianity is warfare. Christianity is spiritual warfare because my own desires are at war within me. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, it stands to reason that sometimes we're going to lose that battle. The, the desire we, we're, we're really trying to, to exercise is the one which is obedient to and pleasing to God. And there are times when we're not going to succeed. And the other thing, the remaining corruption part of us is going to win. Sometimes we're going to cave in. We're going to indulge those desires and sin and do something really stupid and selfish. And sometimes when we do that, we're going to affect other people around us and they're going to get hurt and they're going to get angry and they're going to be disappointed or grossed out. Now, I realize that's probably too tough for us to imagine, so let me try it this way. Sometimes other people are going to cave in, indulge their fleshly desires and sin and do something really stupid and selfish. And sometimes when they do that, it's going to affect us and we're going to be disappointed, hurt, angry, and grossed out by what they've done. That makes more sense, right? We can see that, rightfully so, because what they did was gross. So that sets up the first cause of quarrels and fights among us. But that isn't the totality of the first cause. It's just one part. Here's the rest of it. Our passions, our pleasures, our preferences... Just like they're at war in us individually, our passions are at war with one another's passions. Right? Full stop. Let's put that a different way. Our preferences are at war with one another's preferences. So I got a text a couple months ago, at most, from somebody who I had done premarital counseling with and then officiated their wedding and it was a picture of what my wife and I have in the bathroom, which is two tubes of toothpaste. You want to grab it by the front and squeeze all the toothpaste out of there instead of working it up from the bottom like a cultivated human being, that's fine. I don't want any part of it. So I get my own toothpaste tube, right? And I tell all of the people that I do premarital counseling with, this is a perfect example of how you've you got to adapt, improvise, and overcome so you're not just always fighting with each other. And sure enough, this couple... It was Grace and Aces. Have now two <laughs> tubes of toothpaste. It's because our preferences are at war with other people's preferences. It's not a big deal to some people if the toothpaste leaves the front of the tube first. It is a big deal to some of us. But this is not a moral thing. This is just a preference thing. Right? We don't need to take a poll. Like, it's not going to prove that you're right or wrong. Or that I'm right or wrong. You don't like small groups? Somebody else loves small groups. You don't like coffee on Sundays? Everybody else loves coffee on Sundays. You don't like animated backgrounds during worship? Some of us love the aesthetic during worship. You don't like the house lights dim? Someone else loves the house lights dim. You don't want to meet in the auditorium? Some of us love meeting in the auditorium. Some, some of us love the way we do Lord's Supper here. Some of you hate the way we do Lord's Supper here. And on and on and on and on and on and on, I could go. You, you, you and I are different. You don't like it, they can't live without it. 
They don't like it. You can't live without it. Our passions are at war with one another in our members. What is the source of quarrels and fighting among you? Sometimes it's that we make way too big of a deal about things that just aren't, period. I'll I'll say it again. Sometimes the source of quarrels and fighting among us is that you make way too big of a deal about things that just aren't. Okay? That's, That's a you problem. I don't have that problem. You do it. I do it. Everybody does it. And the fruit, the result, is quarreling and fighting. Second, second cause of quarrels and conflicts. We want things we don't or can't have. Once upon a time, there was a king. And he was king over one of the wealthiest countries in human history up to that point. The king's palace bordered a large vineyard owned by one of his subjects. And the king wanted to plant a vegetable garden there because he so loved cucumbers and tomatoes. The king approached the owner of the vineyard. And here's what he said. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. There was a problem, though. The owner of the vineyard had inherited this land and had been in the family for generations and generations. Had sentimental value to him. So real estate value wasn't all that important. This is what he said to the king. God forbid I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So he declined. But he explained why, right? The king was surprised. He went back to his palace, vexed and sullen. He turned his face away from the door, shuffled up the stairs, walked into his room, looked out his window at the vineyard where he wanted to have a vegetable garden, and then crawled into bed, made sure he laid with his back facing the door, and refused to eat. His wife got word that he was up there doing that. So she came and uh, visited him. Now, everyone knew that the queen was gorgeous and wicked. Everybody knew that. Except the king, he thought she was gorgeous and wise. So she asked him what's wrong, and he tells her. I asked the neighbor for his vineyard. Wouldn't give it to me. So she says, hold on, wait just a minute. Aren't you the king? Nobody gets to tell you what they will and won't do. Stand up, eat some food, and cheer up. You're the king. I'll get you your vineyard. So then she wrote letters with the king's seal on them and sent them to the other leaders within the city where the palace and the vineyard was located. In the letters, she directed the city leaders to hold a great feast and put the owner of the vineyard at the head of the feast. Then she said, I want you to seat a worthless man on either side of him, and at some point in the feast, have these two guys stand up, look aghast, and say, he just blasphemed and cursed the king. So the city leaders did exactly what the king said to do. Although it was the queen writing under his seal, I think he probably knew what was going on. As soon as these two liars finished accusing the vineyard owner, the people dragged the vineyard owner out of the city and killed him for blasphemy 
against God and the king. The king took possession of the vineyard as payment for the vineyard owner's blasphemy. Sure enough, it became his. Here's my question. What is the source of the quarrel and the conflict in the story of Ahab and Naboth from 1 Kings 21? What's the source of conflict? Well, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard and was willing to sin to get it. You tracking? That's pretty simple. How many similar conflicts in the ages of church history have been caused by the same thing? I want something I don't have or I want something I can't have and so I sin in order to get it. And then that sin creates conflict, fighting, squabbling, and warfare all because of coveting. Let's apply that one. What kinds of things do you want that you don't or can't have? I'll go first. I want just like three and a half acres. It's not that I don't want neighbors. I just don't want to be able to throw a football from my deck through their window. And I can't throw a football very far, so I'm not asking much. Your turn. And what happens in your heart when you contemplate those things that you don't or can't have? What happens in your heart, better yet, when you think of somebody who does have that thing? What happens in your heart when you think of an idiot who has that thing? What happens in your heart when you think of someone who does have that thing and doesn't deserve it? What does Jesus say about wanting things? Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Okay? Listen, before we go any further, is that good, sound, practical advice and instruction? Or is it just something that pious people should aspire to to reach the pinnacle of righteousness? I think sometimes we hear Jesus give us instruction like that and we think, when I'm pious, when I'm like really serious about my religious maturity, that directive will carry more weight in my life. Right now I'm worrying about some other things. Instead of hearing, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and going, okay, we go. Jesus just said, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy. I will acknowledge that when I'm 80. Well, here's what he says. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. All right, so you, if you wait until you get the terminal diagnosis to start quickly applying all the things that Jesus said you should do if you want to have a contented and yielded and happy heart, 
I assure you, you will go out of the world in a very similar fashion to the way you've existed in it up to that point. You're not going to make that many adjustments at the last minute. So we've got to start listening to him now. Don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves come in and break in and steal. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven. Fixate on that place and that prize for where your heart is, sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then, then, If the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't. This is not the part where I'm going to pass the plate and tell you you need to part with your money so that we can build a Christian Ferris wheel. It's not, I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating at all. I think what he's communicating, as I learned from Chuck Colson years and years and years ago, which he learned from Corey Ten Boom, and I've told this story a dozen times, we need to hold things loosely. That's what Jesus is communicating. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, nor about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It depends. If you're a 14-year-old girl... Probably not. For the rest of us, yeah, life is about more than those things. And actually, I shouldn't say that, so let me just publicly repent. Because it's boys too, not just girls. (laughs) You will serve one or the other. Amen? What is warring warring, W-A-R-R-I-N-G, inside of us then. Well, I have two desires. One, my flesh. The other, spiritual, God-given, replacement, new desires that he's put in me. So what's warring inside of me is a desire to serve money or stuff or whatever, you know, like fill in the blank. Three and a half acres, a tractor, I don't know, what you, whatever your thing is, there's that desire, and then there's the desire to store up for myself treasures in heaven, right? I have a mustache hair trying to find its way up my nose. It's very tickly, I apologize. I just wanted you to know I'm not up here digging. What happens when the desire for worldly treasure, worldly status, and worldly prestige Treasure, status, and prestige. I think that covers it. What happens when those desires win? What happens in your heart? Don't we tend to sin when the desire for prestige, status, and treasure wins in our heart? We go into unsecured debt for stupid stuff that we don't really need. Now you're paying twice as much for the thing you didn't need. We become miserly and greedy. We begin to fixate on people who have things we want. We start to resent them. We start finding things wrong with them. Why does she get to have a baby? 
Why does he get a nice new truck? Why do they get a nice house? Why did that person get a promotion and a raise? I deserve it. Why do they get to have grandkids over every weekend? Coveting, envy, jealousy, demonic wisdom, quarreling, and fighting. So that, that's the first cause. Our passions wage war within us and our preferences wage war against other people's preferences. Second cause of quarreling and fighting, we don't or can't have it. That's all it takes. I want it, I don't, or I can't have it. Now I will find somebody that does and I will fight with them. He says we'll murder. Perhaps not literally, but how many reputations have you destroyed by an envious, coveting mouth? Oh, that, that was very convicting for me to consider. How many relationships are strained because somebody lied about you and somebody else believed it? Quarreling and fighting, right? Third cause, quarrels and conflicts. Real simple, we have wrong motives. My favorite example of this is John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Some of you are like, wait, this isn't the Mary Martha story, is it? No, relax, ladies, you're fine. This is different. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was <clears throat> about to betray him, <clears throat> said, Why was this ointment not sold for a year's wages? And the proceeds given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Jesus said, Could you imagine being on the receiving end of this instruction? <clears throat> Leave her alone. You will always have the poor. But you will not always have me. Oof. This one cuts to the quick, doesn't it? What do we have here? Well, <clears throat> we have fake concern for the poor, virtue signaling. That is rampant in our day and age, isn't it? Criticism of someone else's worship. Boy. Evaluating a new church has got to be tough because you want to go in and be like, well, there's things that I think are right and there's things that I don't think are right. Like I'm more of a regulative principle guy. If it doesn't say to do it, I don't think we should do it in church. But there are people who would be more normative principle who would say, yeah, it's okay to wave banners and dance around in the aisles. And I'm like, you got to live and let live, right? So looking for a new church has got to be tough because nobody's going to tick all the boxes and you don't want to go in and be like, I hate that. You don't want to criticize somebody else's worship. But you also want to have your own conviction. So i just just throwing that out there for those of you who are visiting. I feel for you. We'll do whatever you want. Just keep coming. 
You have thievery under the guise of philanthropy. So we're, we're looking at pretend interest in the needy, religious snobbery, and blatant hypocrisy. That's what Judas is up to. What's Mary up to here? Why did Mary and Martha throw a dinner for Jesus? This will be, I think, the third time in the book of John we have Mary and Martha come up. The whole subject kind of comes up. Uh, one chapter previous... Jesus raised her brother from the dead. So, if you you know, Jesus brings your brother back from the dead, you probably want to do something extravagant in worship. A year's wages, not even close to enough. You know what? I don't know about you, and I don't want to speak for you, but Jesus brought my wife back from the dead. Jesus brought my three children back from the dead. Like Audrey's going to get baptized this coming summer. And that's it. That's three. So I am more successful uh, biblical parenting than anybody that has, doesn't have 100%. I'm just joking. He brought my brother and my sister-in-law back from the dead. He brought a lot of my friends back from the dead got a whole worship band up here. All people that should be dead in their sins and trespasses out so late last night making money playing music that they couldn't get up early enough to be here this morning. But instead, he brought them back from the dead. And so here they are. Brought your grandkids, your sons and daughters, your spouse, your folks, Countless people in your life, Jesus brought back from the dead. Don't you want to worship the one who brought you back from the dead? Brought me back from the dead. And here's Judas, worried about the poor, so he criticizes Mary. Quarreling and fighting. Or there's Michael, Macau, David's wife, Saul's daughter, the first wife of David. Like, I get why he strayed, just for the record. She was really something. Shames him for dancing publicly when the ark was coming into the city which held the, what would be the tabernacle of God. The ark is finally being brought back after a one failed attempt that cost a man his life. And they're on the road. They're on Main Street, man. And David starts dancing. And the whole party gets over with. And David comes in and his wife goes, well, didn't that king just make himself look so good in front of everybody today? What about your reputation, David? Except, except, she wasn't really worried about David's reputation. She was worried about her own, right? Or you got the Pharisees accusing Jesus of sinning for healing on the Sabbath. Yeah, they weren't really worried about the Sabbath, only their power. And Judas wasn't really worried about the poor, only his own wallet. The motives are wrong. The motive, look, look, the real reason you want the thing, whatever it is, I don't know, is selfish. So how does this work then? What does this look like, practically speaking, in the life of a New Testament believer? Well, you want something, so you pray and you ask God for it. God is interested in and knows, by the way, why you 
want it. And he probably knows better than you do. So we pray and we ask for something, but the end of that thing is sinful. I'll give you an example. What if, what if the only reason I work 45, 50 hours during the week and then spend most of my Saturday preparing sermons and then come in here and do this on Sunday morning is because I want to prove to everybody that said you have to go to seminary to do this job. I want to prove them all wrong. Is God going to bless that? I mean, I might could snow you. I might could convince you that I'm really impressive, but God is not going to honor that. That's a poor motive. And I didn't just reveal something about myself. When we pray for blessings with a selfish aim and not with the intention and design of glorifying God, God knows that we will destroy ourselves with that gift if he gives it to us. So in mercy, he withholds it. And when you are having a request not be granted by God, if you allow resentment to build up in you, the outcome will be quarreling and fighting. But the real issue is you're asking for the thing you want and you're asking with wrong motives. Then, then you'll see someone else with it. And how quickly do we become like Jesus, all concerned about the poor? I would have made better use of that. How quickly do we become the Pharisees judging Jesus for using his gift to bless someone on the Sabbath? When we see somebody serving on a Sunday in a way we'd never thought of and we'll go, oh, she's just doing that for attention. Once again, Envy, covetousness, rise up, quarreling, and fighting is the outcome. Now, remember the question I asked at the outset. That's a hint that it's almost the end of the sermon. Remember the question I asked at the outset. Is the Bible correct? Because what James is doing, what the Holy Spirit through James is doing, is saying the cause of our quarrels and fights is, number one, our own passions and pleasures at war within us and among us. Second, the cause of disagreements with others is that we covet and cannot obtain. Third, the cause of strife and quarrels among us is we ask for things from God with the wrong motives. That's what the Holy Spirit's saying. The source of our quarreling and fighting is one of these three or all of these three. Our own desires we don't have, we can't have something, so we hate the one who does have it. Often, even when we ask for God things, we ask with wrong motives. Is the Bible right? And if, if, if it is, I, I, I believe that it is. If the Bible is right, then what's the solution? But it's already 10.52. We don't have time. We'll have to wait until next week when we get into... Uh, Verses 4 through 12, I'll give you a preview, six things. One, ask God for the grace to be single-minded. Two, humble yourself. Three, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Four, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'm going to stop and just kind of emphasize that one because I think it's by far the most important. See a picture in your head, even if you were a a bad father or a bad mother that didn't love your children very well and it's too late 
or you had a mom or a dad that didn't love you very well and it's too late. Get a picture in your head of what's supposed to happen when the little two and a half, three-year-old comes running into the room and you're sitting on the sofa and they jump up in your lap and say, I just pooped in my bed. What's supposed to happen? No, that's not what's supposed to happen. If they're upset, if they're crying, if they're heartbroken, if they, if they don't know what to do with the situation, you're, you know, you're the grown-up. That's a two-and-a-half-year-old. What they need is for me to come alongside, love them, engage with them, and help them through whatever this crisis that they're having is. What if they come running and jump in your lap and say, I love you and I'm sorry because I did something wrong? What are you as a mom or a dad going to do in that situation? Well, I'm still angry, so you get out of my lap. No. There's not a, not a one of us with two cells of a heart that we could rub together that would do that, right? Right? How much more so your Father in heaven if you climb up into his lap, spiritually speaking, how much more will he embrace you and love you and hold you and tell you, I love you and it's going to be okay. I forgive you and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Fifth, don't speak evil of one another. I wish... I could pump the brakes on the amount of evil that I speak of other people for a nanosecond. I know the minute I'm done doing it, I just want to know five seconds before I do it how I'm going to feel when I'm finished so I can just like, Aah! not. But that's the directive. Don't speak evil of one another. Six, stop judging one another. Okay, that's going to need its own sermon. But those are the six solutions to this problem. Quarreling and fighting. Do we have a big quarreling and fighting? Did James choose to preach through the epistle of James because he thinks we've got a big quarreling and fighting problem around here? No. No. But I think we could if we don't do these things. For now, let's turn our attention to the Lord's Supper.